Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, it is a great pleasure to, to be with you all today, and uh, thanks very much to uh, President Aiken, uh, not only for his kind words of welcome, but for the invitation to be here and uh, share God's word with you. And uh, thanks to Professor Keithley and uh, Emily Harrison, who uh, set the whole thing up. I think it's appropriate uh, that I thank all of those who've uh, exerted themselves over the last few months to, to make my trip so pleasant and delightful for myself and for my wife. And it's a particular delight to be able to share the Word of God with you. I'm always aware. I like to think that Presbyterians have the best theology, but I'm acutely aware that Baptists produce the best preachers. So it's... Uh, it's an interesting experience for me to be preaching before what I imagine is a predominantly Baptist audience. And with that in mind, uh, let's pray before we hear God's word read and proclaimed. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are a God who dwells in unapproachable light. And yet you have revealed yourself to us through your great work of creation, through the words of your Bible, through your providential dealings with your people throughout history and supremely in and through the flesh of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to reflect upon him this morning, we pray, O Lord, that that light that you are would shine into the darkness of our hearts, and that we would leave this place having a greater, a sharper, a more dramatic vision of you than that which we entered this place with. So, Lord, we ask now that your Spirit would accompany your word, would press it upon our hearts and that we might leave here in some small way transformed because we have met with you, the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to the uh, Gospel of Mark and uh, chapter 9, I want to read uh, verses 1 to 8 and then focus our thoughts on the transfiguration. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Praise God for his holy and inspired word. Perhaps you're like me. Perhaps you enjoy reading biographies. You can read, of course, multiple biographies on individual figures. I have a particular soft spot for some reason for Napoleon. It's not often that an Englishman has much of a soft spot for a Frenchman, but I enjoy reading Biographers of Napoleon. I prefer to think of him as a Corsican, a Frenchman. It's emotionally easier for an Englishman to do that. 
but I have on my bookshelves at home numerous biographies of Napoleon, some which treat of him as a military strategist, some which treat of him as a key figure in the aftermath of the French Revolution, some who treat him as a remaker of Europe and of European politics. Even, I don't own this book, and it doesn't interest me that much, actually, but even I see recently a biography of Napoleon in terms of how he had impacted landscape gardening has been published. Biographers, like all historians, make critical decisions about what material to select and how to present it. And of course, in the New Testament, we have four what are essentially biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the heart of them, of course, is the question, who is Jesus? And to answer that question, who is Jesus, we need to address questions both about his person and about his work. Those two things cannot be separated. And each of the gospel writers gives us a particular slant or take on the life of Jesus. It's not that they contradict each other. It's not that they cancel each other out. It's that together they give us a richer portrait of Jesus from different angles than we would have if we just had the one gospel. And I want to focus today on this passage from what is perhaps my favorite of the four gospels, and that is the gospel of Mark. And I want to zero in on the transfiguration. I was chatting to a, an Eastern Orthodox priest friend in the last 12 months, and he he made the comment to me that Protestants, you just don't preach on the transfiguration. I immediately went on the defensive and said, yes, we do, and then struggled to think of a single sermon I'd ever heard on the transfiguration in nearly 40 years of being a Christian and a regular churchgoer. It pops up as people preach through the Gospels, but it's rarely an important focal point of the way Protestants think about Jesus. And I want to suggest that that is something of a, a gap, that the transfiguration is actually a critically important, critically important moment in Jesus' life that unlocks profound, deep theology about Jesus. You might respond, of course, by saying, ah, yes, but the transfiguration only appears in three of the four Gospels. It isn't in the Gospel of John. If it's that important, why wouldn't it be in all four Gospels? I will address that criticism, that comment uh, later in this sermon. But I want to suggest today that the transfiguration should lie at the center of our Christology, at the center of how we understand Jesus who we understand him to be. And I want to make just three broad points in that context. I want to suggest that the context and language of the transfiguration should alert us to the fact that Jesus is somebody of great significance. Secondly, I want to point us to the light that is manifested at the transfiguration as something that reveals who Jesus is in terms of his person. And thirdly, I want to suggest that the companions, the various uh, witnesses of the transfiguration, point us to who Jesus is in terms of his work. 
So I think this passage, if you like, takes us to the fact that Jesus is of great significance. It points us to the truth of his person, and it directs us towards the greatness and the nature of his work. The first point then, the context of the transfiguration indicates that Jesus is somebody of significance. I've already noted as I open today that the Gospels are selective narratives. Uh, No biography can ultimately cover every single detail of everybody's life. The biographer has to make a choice which details to include, which to leave out, how much detail to provide. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the Gospel of Mark, and you will know that it is the most concise of the four Gospels. Mark is a gospel where everything happens at speed. That word immediately occurs again and again in the gospel of Mark. There is no, we might say, sort of small talk in the gospel of Mark. Jesus moves from one moment of action to the next in rapid succession. And that means that when Mark throws in what would appear to be at first glance unnecessary details, they're really highly significant. Think of Mark chapter 5. We have the, the famous incident there, the sort of the double incident of the healing of the woman with the flow of blood and the raising from the dead of Jairus' daughter. And it's always struck me as interesting that we get to know Jairus' name, but we don't hear the name of the woman with the flow of blood. And I think the one legitimate conclusion to draw from that is early readers of Mark's gospel would have known who Jairus was because he was a man of stature in the community. And Mark is trying to direct his readers to this person they may have heard of or may even have known. The woman with the flow of blood, though Jesus calls her daughter and blesses her in incredible ways, her name would have been unknown. There's no need to put her name in because nobody would know who she was anyway. Though Jesus graciously blessed her that day, she was somebody of no social standing. In the passage before us today, we have detail that doesn't seem necessary for the drama of what's going on. Notice, we're told the timing. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Six days. We're given the timing. Why? Well, I think it's because we're being reminded of the connection between the old creation and the new creation. Mark isn't just sticking that in as a chronological marker. Mark also wants our minds to go back to Genesis 1. Mark wants us to realize that what's happening here is something as great in its way as the original creation. We're also told that this takes place up a high mountain. Things happen on mountains in the Bible. Genesis 22, and we're going to return to Genesis 2 a little later in this passage because I do not think that the mountain location is the only resonance with Genesis 22 that we find in this passage. Abraham is to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, to a mountain that the Lord will show him and there sacrifice it to God. Elijah, where does Elijah face down the prophets of Baal? On the top of Mount Carmel. 
He goes to the top of a mountain and God does a great thing. Perhaps most famous of all, of course, Moses. Moses goes up Sinai. And the Lord meets with Moses on Sinai and gives him the law. Moses meets with God. Of course, later we're told when Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle that God would meet with Moses there as a man meets with his friend. Moses meets with God on top of a mountain. Why a mountain so significant? Oh, we don't really know, I think. One could make a case for their remoteness, I suppose. Is it because the, the men who find themselves at the top of these mountains, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Elijah, are sort of particularly vulnerable, particularly dependent upon God? when they're exposed on the summit of a mountain. If you've ever climbed to the top of a mountain or walked up a very high hill and found yourself caught in a storm, you'll feel very vulnerable. There's not much you can do to shelter. You're exposed. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the intimacy. Maybe alone on top of a mountain, there's an intimacy that takes place there. Maybe it's all three. We don't know. But one thing we do know is this. When things happen on tops of mountains in the Bible, they tend to be very significant. So we have the six days, we have the top of the mountain. Then we have the language, of course, of transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before them. That language is used a couple of other times in the New Testament not to refer to the transfiguration of Jesus. Romans 12, 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. There it's being used to talk about radical transformation. Something powerful and radical happens to believers. They are transfigured. Here we hear about that happening to Jesus. Whatever is going on on this mountain, it's powerful, it's decisive. Jesus, of course, undergoes this radical transformation of appearance before them. And all of this, I think, reinforces the point that what is going on here is of critical importance. Not simply, I would say, in the gospel narrative, but in the narrative of the Bible as a whole. So the first point then, the way the story is set up by Mark indicates this is big. This is very important. You need to pay attention, Mark is saying, to what's about to happen. This isn't just a run-of-the-mill day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Something very special and very important and very significant is about to happen. Brings me to the second point. The light of the transfiguration reveals who Jesus is in terms of his person. Jesus' clothes appear white at this point. I've never been to Israel. I have actually been to Turkey. I spent uh, a month in 1986 uh, backpacking across Turkey to what would then have been uh, the Soviet border. Got to virtually the Soviet border at the far end of, uh, of, of eastern Turkey. I think it was 19 at the time. I've looked back and think my parents must have been insane to let me. I caught the bus in London to Athens and then I backpacked from Athens all the way over to the, the eastern side of Turkey. What were my parents thinking of? You know, I just disappeared for seven weeks, and they didn't really hear from me for seven weeks. It sounds insane. Uh, 
But one thing I did notice in Turkey was people, generally speaking, didn't wear white. White is not a very practical color in the Near East. The Near East is a dirty and dusty place. White gets dirty too quickly. Why does Jesus appear in, in white at this point? Well, I would suggest that white is typically a sign of purity. My wife had the great delight this summer of uh, our oldest son getting married and uh, his bride-to-be, his now wife, on the wedding day. Uh, she's walking down the aisle and the music changes and we all turn around to look uh, at her walking down the aisle. I was not surprised to see that she was dressed in white. She was symbolizing her purity as she approaches the front of the church to be given to my son in marriage. The whiteness of her dress was not an accident. It was meant to convey something. I think that's what we see here. Jesus' glorious, shining white clothes speak of his purity. Speak of his, we might say, unearthly purity at this point. This is unusual purity, whiter than any bleach on earth could bleach them. It's reminiscent, I think, of the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. It points to that biblical analogy to which we will return of God as light. Reinforced, of course, when you think of the Old Testament manifestations of God by the reference to the cloud in this passage as well. All of these things speak of the authoritative and active presence of God in this moment. But I want us to spend just a few moments thinking about light. One of the courses I teach at Grove uh, City College is on uh, the doctrine of God. And uh, one of the texts or one of the authors we look at is Gregory of Nazianzus. If you look online, I, did a, I didn't do it. Somebody used a lecture I did to produce it, a rap song on Gregory of Nazianzus. I am actually a rapper. Uh, the Grove City students listened to it, and I asked one of them, what was it like? And he said, it was hideous, Dr. Truman. So I don't recommend it uh, unless you want to stay awake at night because you've been scared by something. Yeah. But one of the things that always fascinated me about Gregory of Nazianzus, who's one of the great jewels of the ancient church, is how fascinated he was by the idea of God as light. That was perfect timing. <laughs> I, I could not have... Money doesn't buy you that. That's, uh, that was fantastic. A flash of light and a roll of thunder, as I said it. Light is a biblical analogy for God. But when you think about it, it's a brilliant analogy for God. We don't actually see light. You don't see light. You see the things that light illuminates. When you put on a light in a dark room, you don't see the light. You see the things in the room. And the purer the light, the more intense the light is, for example, the sun, the less able we are to look directly at it. Light is a brilliant way of thinking about God 
as he is in himself, I think. God is invisible. He cannot be seen because he is too glorious to be seen. But of course, the amazing thing that the New Testament claims about the Lord Jesus Christ is what? God is made visible through the human flesh. 1 John chapter 1, that which we have seen. How do you see light? Well, you see light as it radiates through things. You ever played that game as a, as a child? I have to translate it because last time I... Uh, I use this analogy, I use the word torch, which doesn't work in America. Torch involves flames. And somebody said you'd hurt yourself if you did it in America. Flashlight. Flashlight is the American term. Remember as a kid, you, know, you put a flashlight in your mouth and you'd switch the flashlight on and your cheeks would glow. And it was kind of fun to do in the dark. Or you could put a flashlight behind your hand or you'd be reading under the, the bed sheets and your parents would come in and they'd know that you'd broken the curfew because they would see the glow under the bedsheets. Well, your flesh, you put a flashlight in your mouth and switch it on, your flesh makes the light visible. That's what happens at the transfiguration, I think. Here, we see God through the flesh. The flesh, we might say, glows because of its union with the divine. The transfiguration reveals Jesus as divine because the light shines through his flesh. And the witnesses that day see the light because it illuminates the flesh. And that brings me back to that point I raised earlier. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the transfiguration. Why doesn't John, therefore, include the transfiguration? He doesn't have to. The whole of John's gospel is a gospel of transfiguration. The whole of John's gospel is to carry the idea, to impress upon the reader that God is manifest in the flesh. The light shines through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not worry me, it should not worry you that the transfiguration is not in John. It doesn't mean it's important. In some ways, it's the most important thing in the Gospel of John. It's in every verse virtually. What we see here in the transfiguration is God made flesh. The light revealed to us through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say, the light of God accommodated to the finite capacity that human beings have that allows us to see it in Christ. So the first thing then, this is very significant. Secondly, wow, yes, it's really significant because it reveals that Jesus Christ is man and God united such that the divinity shines through the flesh. Thirdly, the companions at the transfiguration reveal who Jesus is in terms of his work. Numerous companions that day. First of all, there are, of course, the historic figures of Moses and Elijah. When I first preached this uh, sermon, I preached it actually as the last sermon in a series on the lives of Elijah and Elisha. 
I felt it was appropriate to end the series with the last appearance in Scripture of the prophet Elijah. What do they represent? Law and prophets. They're both associated with mountains as well. Mount Carmel, Mount Sinai. Both were transfigured. Elijah was transferred to heaven without passing through death in a remarkable way. Moses, if you remember, when he emerges from speaking with God, his flesh glows. We might say, some of the, ma- I mean this without any sacrilege whatsoever, we might say, some of the magic seems to have worn off on him. He glows from having been in such close proximity to God. Elijah and Elijah were transfigured, but not as Jesus is transfigured here. Here, Jesus appears as the perfection the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and one might say as the fulfillment of transfiguration as well. So we have the first set of companions, Moses and Elijah. Then we have the second set of companions, the disciples. It's interesting, it's just a a subset of the disciples here. And when I was uh, accepting this sort of challenge from the Orthodox priest, you know, preach on the Transfiguration, I asked him to recommend some books to me, and he sent me to a wonderful book. If you have a chance to get hold of it, do so. Light on the Mountain, published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press. And it's a collection of uh, sermons from the ancient church on the Transfiguration. And I was interested to see that one of the big problems the ancient church had with the Transfiguration was, why only three disciples? Why not more? And the conclusion they seem to have come up with pretty uniformly is, If they'd invited them all there, then Judas would have witnessed it. And this was a way of keeping Judas out without pointing the finger at him. If it had been everybody but Judas, everybody had been wondering. Purely speculative resolution of the question, I think, but it it worked for me. I, I throw it out there. What's interesting is they are terrified. Peter sort of stammers out this odd response. Perhaps his mind is thinking of the Feast of Booths at this point, in which tents would have played a part. The problem, of course, if Jesus had said to uh, Peter, yep, go and build us tents, I think two things would have been problematic there. One, Jesus would have been placed on the same level as Moses and Elijah, and that's not the point of the transfiguration. And secondly, Secondly, it might have deflected Jesus Christ from the cross. Peter fails, I think, to grasp that the glory being witnessed here is just a foretaste of what must and can only be delivered by the cross. So the faltering, faulty response of the disciples points us to the greater truth as well. And that is reinforced by the third witness to the transfiguration. And that, of course, is the Father himself. Look at what the Father says. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Reminiscent, I think, of Genesis 22. I think when God the Father acknowledges the Son at baptism, any Jew who heard that statement, this is my beloved Son, Their minds would have tracked back to Genesis 22. Many years ago, my wife and I had the pleasure of attending the bar mitzvah of the son of a Jewish friend. And the text that the 
uh, rabbi chose to preach on that day was Genesis 22. And it's one of my favorite passages in all Scripture because it's so mysterious uh, and so dramatic. And at the end of the sermon, the very last sentence was this. What sort of a God would call on a man to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son whom he loved? To which politeness prevented me, but my heart wanted to say, the kind of God who is prepared to do that himself. That's what we see here. What was foreshadowed mysteriously in Genesis 22, again we get a strong hint. This man that you have seen transfigured before you, he is the one who will be the fulfillment of that problem that is thrown up in Genesis 22. His baptism here is reaffirmed. Jesus is identified as the Son, and we are pointed to his coming sacrifice. So what we have in this text is a statement that, pay attention, this is a remarkable thing that is about to happen before your eyes. Secondly, this is God himself manifest in the flesh. The divinity blazes out through the flesh and is in a mysterious way made visible precisely through its contact with the flesh. And thirdly, it's not just the person of Christ that is so amazing, it is the work that he is to accomplish not work that involves him sitting in a tent conversing with Elijah and Moses indefinitely. No. Work greater than theirs. Work that points us to the mystery of the sacrifice of God's own Son on Calvary. It brings us then to the point of application. I say, well, that's all well and true, but what difference does it make? I'd like to suggest it should make all the difference in the world. First of all, I think there's a doctrinal lesson we can take from this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The light shines through him demonstrating that in Jesus, you don't have an inspired man. You have God himself united to the flesh. And here in the transfiguration, if you like, the curtain is lifted. When Jesus says, there are those standing here who will not, see the king, will not die before they see the kingdom of God, maybe this is it, or at least a glimpse of it. The kingdom of God manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see or get strong hints at the necessity of Christ's suffering. Jesus will not be delayed by Peter's well-meant but wrong-headed attempt to honor him at this point. No, he will not be distracted from the greater task that lies ahead, that of being the sacrifice, the beloved son who is sacrificed. We see his, the necessity of his suffering being brought out for us. And we see the authority of Jesus' teaching. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We read in Hebrews about how Jesus is the great fulfillment of the prophets. Well, I think we see it here too. Listen to him. That's what you're meant to do to prophets. Well, this is the beloved son. If you listen to them, then you must listen to him. Secondly, we get a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom to come. What is momentarily glanced here by the disciples 
will one day be revealed to all and no longer hidden. Paul's uh, second letter to the Corinthians is uh, one of my favorite, probably sends a wrong signal. It's one of the hardest letters to read in the New Testament. I preached my way through it once. It's a grim letter to preach through because of all the suffering that Paul endures. But what's interesting about Paul compared to us and our generation is Paul doesn't whine, or as we would say in England, whinge about his suffering. He talks about it as preparation, a light momentary affliction, preparing him for the eternal weight of glory that is to come. That's what we see here. I think it's nonsense when people will say about a Christian, oh, he's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly use. I'm inclined to agree with Hans Borsma. Christians who are not heavenly-minded are of no earthly use whatsoever because they have no way of setting the contradictions of this world in any kind of appropriate context. And they will become bitter, they will become twisted, they will become angry. And that is not how Christians are described in the New Testament. By this will all men know that you are my disciples by the love you have for each other. I'm going to engage in an extended rant against Twitter, not now, but this evening. Twitter does not fuel the kingdom of God, by and large. Twitter makes people angry and bitter, it seems to me. The kingdom of God, knowing what is coming, that is what softens our hearts. That is what allows us to put the present in perspective. We get a glimpse here into the nature of heaven itself. And I would add, beyond that, what is heaven? There is a strong Christian tradition with which I am very sympathetic, that heaven will consist in gazing on the resurrected humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in and of itself will be a transformative thing. Another early church father, Gregory of Nyssa, argues that heaven will be continual transformation, it will go on getting greater and greater because God is infinite and we are finite. It will never reach its end for us. But heaven will be gazing on the glorious, resurrected humanity of Christ and undergoing a wonderful transformation. If this glimpse of heaven is not practical in the most important sense of the word, then I don't know what is. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for the glimpse of heaven you give us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the transfiguration where we see there your divinity shining out through the humanity. We pray, oh Lord, that as we face challenges day by day, some great, some small, you would give us that vision of Christ that we with the Apostle Paul might in the midst of our pain, in the midst of contradiction, be able to say, ah, but this is but a light momentary affliction, preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that is to come, glory which you have graciously revealed to us already in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.